difficult one and is not one that the enemy wants us to hear. So I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will give me the words that you have, the words that you have given me throughout the week to, to say this morning that your Spirit will um, use those words. They will not be mine, but yours, God. Use them to help us to understand what we're up against, what we're dealing with as followers of Jesus. May we be encouraged by your word this morning. And thank you that it is powerful and it's living and it's active. And we thank you that it is the thing that we run to, to for strength and for power. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the living word and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I know that most of us in this room here would agree that being a follower of Jesus really is one of the most glorious adventures that can possibly happen. You know, Jesus said that he came so that not only would we have life, but we would have it what? Abundantly. He said that we would have this amazing life that you couldn't imagine having without him. Yet Jesus also promised that this life of following in his footsteps would also be fraught with danger. It would be fraught with difficulties. He said that in the world you will have tribulation. And then one other point, he said that I send you out, he said this to his disciples, I send you out as to wolves, the sheep amongst wolves. Wow, that sounds pretty heavy. The reality is this is because the reality is that we are engaged daily in an, un, in an unseen spirit, with an unseen spiritual enemy that desires to totally destroy us. Pastor John Piper said this, he said, one of the most sobering facts about life is that all humans have a supernatural enemy whose aim is to use pain and pleasure to make us blind, stupid, and miserable forever. Wow. So the reason this is so important for us to remember this and not forget this is that when life does go sideways, that we're not caught off guard and not able to un we're unable to handle what we're facing, wondering, why did this happen? How could this possibly be happening? God, where are you? You know, reminding ourselves that we are, in fact, engaged in a daily spiritual battle can actually alleviate a lot of frustration because what it does is it puts the spiritual journey we are on in perspective. See, the problem is, unfortunately, though, this Western culture that we live in that puts such a high value on comfort we live in this and what we easily do, we fall into that mindset as Christians that life should be somewhat easy. It should go from victory to victory, not having too many problems. What happens is we fall into that mindset and we end up being discouraged. And we go, wait a second, this Christian thing isn't all that I thought it was supposed to be. Now, I know most of us probably wouldn't say that we adhere to that mindset, but the truth is, when push comes to shove, we, when we encounter difficulties, most of us, I know for me, my, our, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, what? <laughs> Wait a second. This isn't how life is supposed to be. This can't be right. It's not supposed to go crazy like this. It's not supposed to go sideways like this. Well, there's a reason life goes sideways at times. And the reason it does this, the reason there is pain, the reason there is sorrow, and the reason there is difficulty because the Bible is because the Bible clearly teaches us that mankind has an enemy. 
We all have an enemy, and his name is Satan, or the devil. No, this isn't meant to be a scary or weird sermon at all. Remember, we're going through the foundational basics of the faith, the Christian faith. And this is so important for us, especially as followers of Jesus, that we understand what we are against. Because reality is what the enemy would love to do is get us to not think about it. The enemy would like us to think that there's not an enemy out there. It's not a big deal. He would absolutely love that. So who is Satan? Who is this guy? Who is Satan or who is the devil? The Bible tells us about him. He tells us that he is a created being, okay? He's a fallen angel and his aim is to thwart God's purposes. He was created as the most beautiful and the most highest ranking angel, yet because of his beauty and his, and his high rank, he became arrogant, he became arrogant to this and decided that he wanted to sit on the throne and he wanted to be God. Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14 says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, speaking of the devil here, above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. In the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So as a result of his arrogance, he was cast out of heaven. And it really was his pride that led Satan to his fall. Scripture refers to him now in all sorts of different terms, okay? It says, he's the ruler of this world. He's the prince of power of the air, the evil one, the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning, the accuser, the tempter, the deceiver. This is not a good guy. Okay, this is not some guy walking around with a little pitchfork and horns, okay? Remember in Halloween, when I was really young, my family wasn't walking with the Lord much. I was a devil every year. <laughs> and honestly, that's a bad thing. I might as well do whatever it's Halloween. By the way, I shouldn't have disclosed, though my wife says don't. Um, <laughs> Halloween's my favorite holiday. Um, okay, I said it. Um, but... You know, I think that just loving that whole thing and playing thing, and I get that, that's okay, but the reality is, is that played into the whole thing that this is the fun thing, he's a no big deal guy. That's not the truth. It is not the truth at all. His name, Satan, actually means adversary or one who opposes us. That's not fun. That means he's against us completely. The schemes of Satan along with the demons that are under his authority, yes, they are there, are what they would do anything, they're there to do anything possible through the use of lies and deception to cause people to turn away from God and ultimately destroy themselves. That is his aim. Now, the good news is that Satan is a defeated foe. That's the good news. In dying on the cross, not only did Jesus give his life for the sins of the world, but he, when he rose again, so that he, would, he broke the power, broke Satan's power over fallen humanity. Doesn't have complete power over us anymore. You see, when a follower of, follower of Jesus, when come, someone becomes a follower of Jesus, we now identify with Christ in his death and his resurrection. 
You see, we are alive in Christ, and we actually share in this victory over Satan. We got to remember that. We share in the victory over Satan. First John chapter 3, verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So let's talk about what, how he operates. How does Satan operate? How does he pull this off? Although he's defeated, although he knows and we know and he knows his destiny, Satan still causes havoc in order to blind people of the message of the gospel and really to minimize the potential of every believer. His desire is to minimize our potential as believers, to live for, to seek after, to emulate, and to glorify God. If he can do anything to minimize, that's what he's going to do. He'll use guilt, he'll use doubt, fear, confusion, envy, pride, anything he can possibly think of to hinder a Christian's usefulness and their witness. Anything. And it's usually stuff that we don't expect so often. We actually get a pretty clear picture so it, about how Satan actually does this devouring um, that he says, it's a, I, I skipped the verse, First Peter 5, 8 says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is serious. So how does he do this? How does he attempt to devour us? We get a pretty clear picture of this into how he works from the very first interaction that he ever had with mankind. And that's where we're going to look today. We're going to go all the way back, just like in looking at the family last week, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis to look at how this all came about. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read the whole thing. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any fruit, eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, good going, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves, made themselves loincloths. So Satan comes to Eve in the Garden of Eden in the likeness of a serpent or of the snake. Okay, notice what, this, what he's like here. He's crafty. Or some of you in your version, it says he's shrewd. That is a great description of Satan. So he starts, here's what he does. So he starts with Eve doing the very same thing that he does with us. This is how he starts. He starts by placing doubt into Eve's mind as to whether God is truly good. That's where he starts, okay? He says, did God actually say that you can't eat of any tree 
Did he actually say that? Are you sure that's what he said? Come on, really. If God was so good, if God was so loving and kind, why would he be so restrictive? Why would he do that? He wouldn't do that to you. Don't you think he would want you to be able to decide for yourself what was right and what was wrong? Come on, doesn't he give you any credit whatsoever? You see what he's doing here? See what the enemy's doing here? He's tempting her to decide for herself what is in her best interest instead of trusting God that God has her best interest actually in mind. He's actually tempting her, get this, tempting her to be godlike. Sound familiar? Sound like something he did? He's tempting her to do the very same thing that he fell to. You see, whenever we attempt to act independently and to make our own will the center and the frame of reference for anything for moral guidelines, we are attempting to be godlike. It's making our own will more important than God's will and attempting to rise above what we perceive as these limitations imposed by God. Don't you hear that a lot from society about Christians and about the Bible? It's all about what you can't do. That's, that's exactly what Satan wants the world to think. It's all about what you can't do. It's not about the freedom. It's not about the joy, the grace, the goodness. It's about what you can't do because God can't be that good. That's what he's telling Eve. What he also does is he gets Eve to believe that she needs something that she does not have to be happy. It's to get her to feel discontent with her present state. If he can get her to feel discontent with her present state, he's got her. Can you see Eve responding to this? Well, I bet if I know exactly what good and evil are, I'll be a more informed person. Okay, I'll be able to be a happier person because I'll know more. Obviously, God must be holding something back from me. What he's provided, provided you know what, there's, there's got to be more. There just has to be more. This can't be all there is. And that's where she went. This leads to the next thing. This leads to Eve taking matters into her own hands. So Eve takes the fruit of the tree, gives some to her husband, let's not even go there, and, then he, and, he, and they eat. Just hands it to him, he, they eat it, hoping now, what they're probably hoping is that they will feel more in control, okay? They will be in control. They'll be more complete because we are making our own decisions here. They're hoping that this giving into this feeling, giving into this great idea will ultimately lead to this greater sense of worth and greater sense of happiness. You see where he's going with this? What a deceiver. You see, for Eve, the fruit seemed absolutely harmless. It's not like Eve looked at that fruit and went, man, that's going to do me some damage. I better, not, I better not do that. It looked good for It looked good to her, but it didn't look good because it, who knows what the fruit was. It wouldn't because it didn't look so delicious. That wasn't the point. The point was it looked good. It says good for food. It was delightful to her eyes and it had the ability to make her wise. Ooh, that sounds good. That sounds better than pile a mode. That sounds amazing. If I can have that kind of control, wonderful. 
was really, yet what it really was, was the temptation and desire for autonomy or independence from God. That's what it was. She was fooled into thinking that if I could be more autonomous, more independent, there's got to be goodness in that. There has to be. The restrictions will come off. I will feel free to do what I want, and I will feel good about that. And the result of giving in to this desire for autonomy and independence from God, man, it doesn't turn out at all like they had hoped. Not at all. They were expecting this sense of empowerment, this sense of joy to come in to, the, and, oh, look what we did. We're going to feel good. But instead, what do they experience? Shame. Probably the exact opposite. Can you imagine the surprise they must have felt when this feeling of shame just came over them going, whoa. That's not at all what we expected. And notice the depth of their shame here too. They became self-conscious about their bodies. And they were, became felt, they were very vulnerable between each other. You know, what was, was perceived earlier as this innocent and healthy and wonderful relationship with no need to hide, even being totally naked, no need to hide, now turns into something shameful that needed to be hidden from each other. And they were also aware that they rebelled against God. So they felt shame about that as well. Remember later on it says that they, God came looking for them and they hid. Because the shame was just overpowering. The reality is that we don't usually fall into sin because it looks harmful and destructive, do we? Sometimes we know exactly what we're heading into. Sometimes like I know and I just can't. I just, ugh. But most of the time we have, that's not our intent. We don't think this is gonna be bad at all. We fall into sin because we're deceived into thinking that our present state is not enough. This is not how it should be. The enemy strives to make us feel discontent with who we are, with what we are, and what we have constantly to get us to believe that God is holding something back from us. Do you see the progression here? And where does it lead? This progression leads to disaster. So it's vitally important, you guys, vitally important that we recognize that we are in a battle with Satan to deceive us from fully trusting God and who he is. That is his aim. So how then, how do we defend ourselves? This has been pretty depressing so far, right? I'm not seeing a lot of smiles out there yet. <laughs> oh man, thanks for the uplifting Sunday. You're under attack. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> no. So how do we defend? How do we defend ourselves against our enemy Satan? Well, the good news is that we don't have to be discouraged because we are not in this battle alone. In his letter to the church of, in Ephesus, the apostle Paul gives us some very clear instructions as followers of Jesus on how to defend ourselves against Satan. So we're going to go, now we're going to go into the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, okay? We're going to look at very familiar, if you've been in church at, for many years at all, this is a very familiar passage to you. We're going to start, we're going to look at um, a few verses here, but let's start with uh, verse 10, Ephesians 6, 10. He says, finally... Be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. The Apostle Paul just got done talking about all these things that they're supposed to be doing, how to live their life as believers. I says, now he says, now be strong in the Lord. So that's the first thing we order to do, we do in order to defend ourselves is be strong in the Lord. You see, the good news is that as followers of Jesus, our strength to stand against Satan and his forces is not our own. That is not where it comes from. It's only, and get this, it is only found in a relationship with Jesus. That's the only place it's found. You see, you can only be strong in the Lord if you are in the Lord. Exactly. You can only be strong in the Lord if you are in the Lord. You can't be religious enough. You can't attend church enough. You have to be in the Lord. I love what Philippians 4.13 says. I love this verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not because I've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Not because I got a lot of know-how. It's because of him I can do all things. Earlier in this letter to Ephesians, the Apostle Paul encouraged his readers with the truth about God's power that is in us. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, he says this, Now to him who is able to, check this out, do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is work, where? within us. It's the power in us to be victorious. Not the power that I have, it's the power that's in me because of Jesus. And the reality is we have plenty, all of us, many of us in here have plenty of proof that God is all powerful and could do way more than we could possibly ask or imagine. I mean, think about it. Think about the work of creation. However that happened, Think about, think about that. However that happened, oh my goodness, that is amazing. How about his mighty works through history? You read the Bible and you see the amazing things that God did. How about in your own life? Especially those of you that came to the Lord as an adult. You know how amazing, amazing God's power is to go from having an adult mindset that is not walking with the Lord to all of a sudden going, oh my goodness, this is amazing. So we have proof. Surely, if we know all these things, surely we can, God can provide the power to help us overcome whatever Satan may throw at us. So now in order to be strong in the Lord, though, we must acknowledge our need for his strength. That's so important. We need to acknowledge our need. You see, the biggest obstacle to us experiencing God's strength and power is one thing, pride. That is the biggest obstacle that we face, believing that I can do all things through me. I can do all things through that skill that I've acquired. I can do all things through the knowledge that I have, the abilities that I have. I don't know about you, but I go there pretty quick. So easy. That's how we are deceived. Peter, Pastor Steve, Pastor Steve Cole writes this in his book. He writes this, in reality, the strong Christian is one who has come to see more and more of his own weakness and propensity towards sin. That awareness drives him to depend all the more on the Lord's strength. To be strong in the Lord, you must know your own weakness. 
Remember, it was the great apostle Paul who said, when I am weak, then that's when I am truly strong. When, I'm, when I have nothing left of my own, when I have nothing left of my own resources, that's when I am incredibly strong because I'm going to be relying on his amazing strength and power. So the first thing we're able to do here to defend ourselves against Satan is to be strong in the Lord. Now, being strong in the Lord means that we utilize the resources that he has given us. It doesn't mean just sitting back going, okay, I got God. I'm just going to sit back and wait and see what happens. No, he's given us resources. So the second thing that we see here we're to do defend ourselves is found in verse 11. It says this, to put on the whole armor of God. To put on the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So what we see here is that not, we're not to take matters into our own hands because the battle that we are fighting, it's a spiritual one. If we're fighting a spiritual battle, then obviously our weapons need to be what? Spiritual as well. They have to be spiritual. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare, what we fight with, are not of flesh and blood, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Our weapons need to have divine power because we are not waging a war against flesh and blood, like I said. It's not against flesh and blood. It is against the schemes, he says here, the schemes of the devil. So what are these schemes? What are these schemes of the devil? Well, we see a lot of them throughout scripture few things. I have a slide where I just kind of listed a whole bunch of these things. We're tempted. He tempts us to sin, lies to us about the truth because what Jesus said, he's the father of lies. He accuses us of not being worthy of God's precious, being his precious child and heaping guilt on us from past sins or past mistakes. He mixes error with just enough truth to make something wrong seem plausible. He fools people into thinking that good things can be attained by doing something wrong. By blinding the minds of unbelievers to the truth of the gospel, snatching the word of God out of people's hearts before it has a chance to be established or rob us of our faith. He makes sin seem pleasurable and there's gonna be, no, by the way, no consequences. Don't worry about it. He uses pride, selfishness, anger, bitterness, the love of money like we talked about a few weeks ago, lust, greed, and so many other things. These are his schemes that he uses to lure us away from the Lord. So in view of this, we are to put on the full armor of God. And we'll look at this armor in just a minute. Because the next verse in verse 12 says why, why God's provision of the armor is so vital for us. This is why we have to have it. Look what it says in verse 12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, this battle we are in is much more fierce than we could, any human battle that we could possibly ever be involved in, whatever, bigger than Mayweather and McGregor coming up. Anything, it's bigger than anything we could possibly imagine. 
rulers and authority and cosmic powers and forces. What these do is these are describing satanic and demonic powers that are at work in the world with the chief goal, once again, to deceive and to destroy. The point is, of all of this, is, to, is that it's so important that we don't underestimate the power and the tactics and the forces of Satan. Do not underestimate. Yet we also don't want to get caught up in dwelling too much on it and looking for, I know, looking for demons everywhere, looking for you. I know this can happen to some people and get fearful about this and thinking, oh my gosh, what, what am I going to do? And thinking about demons being everywhere. But remember, Satan is a defeated foe. And the only power that he has, he can only do things that God allows in his sovereign wisdom. That's all he can do. I love what C.S. Lewis says in the Screw Tape Letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That is so true. We have a balanced view of this whole, this whole deal. Now, in verse 13, we're given the purpose for putting on the armor of God. Here's why you do it. Here is the purpose for putting on the armor of God. Look what verse 13 says. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We put on the full armor of God in order to be able to stand our ground. That's why we do it. Here Paul is emphasizing again the importance of putting on this whole armor so we can stand firm in our faith when we're attacked. And he will attack. Got a hint for you. Daily. <laughs> the enemy does not take a vacay. He does not go off. The Bahamas, he doesn't go hang out. He says, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of it. Man, it's a lot of work doing all this evil. <laughs> oh, that's, that's what he's all about. That's what he's all about. So it's going to constantly come. And we need to remember that. Keep that in our minds. Um, the implication here is that we're to always be ready. Always be ready to do battle. Every day. Eyes open. Bink. The battle's on. Because it is. But not like, oh my gosh, the battle's on. No. Just to know that we have an enemy. So if things start to go sideways, there's a reason. There's a reason for that. We need to be in a continual state of preparedness for the onslaught of lies and deception that are going to be coming our way. Just need to be ready. So what is this armor? What is this armor of God that enables us to stand our ground? Well, verses 14 through 18 list the different pieces of armor, including the specific functions that each has. Now, I'm not going to go through this list and explain each one of these. That's a whole couple sermons more. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a little bit about it, really just talking about what it really represents. So let's look at that. Look at, look at verses 14 through 18. It says this, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for the, your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. What is the armor of God? Essentially, what the armor of God represents is Jesus. That's what the armor of God is. Look at Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This phrase here, put on, that's in this verse, or to clothe in some of your verses, it's the same phrase that's used for the armor. Put on, put on Jesus. You see, Jesus is the truth, the belt. We are seen as righteousness, we are seen as righteous because of him, the breastplate. He is our peace, the shoes. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, the shield. He is our savior, the helmet of salvation. And he is the very word of God made flesh, the word. It's Jesus. Putting on the armor of God means by faith we take for our use his strength in place of our weakness so that we can stand, for, stand our ground, we can stand firm. So how do we practically do that? How do we put on the armor of God? How do we actually put on Jesus? Because I'm saved, I've accepted Christ as my Savior, but we're being told here to put on this battle array. We need to do something. It's active on our part. So how do we do this? Well, I really believe that it, it's not as difficult as we make it out to be. It really is simply boils down to a couple vital yet often taken for granted spiritual practices, I believe. The first one, and this is, you guys going to go, really? This is what your, this is your big conclusion, Rob? Yeah. Right? The first is consistently being in God's word. We need to be in God's word. Being God's, and here's why. Not just because it's what Christians are supposed to do, but because being in God's word is what bathes us in that powerful truth that combats the lies and deceptions that you and I hear every day. Just think about it. If we're getting bombarded by lies and deception all day long, every single day by the enemy, doesn't it make sense that we should as often as possible be bathing ourselves in the truth of God's word that's living and it's active and it's powerful, able to cut through stuff and just tell us what's really up? Of course. Being in God's word is so important. If you aren't sure what to read, ask somebody. So I know a lot of people do that. I, I want to read, but I don't know what to do. Ask somebody. Get the version app on your phone. Something, get different, do whatever it takes. Find out what it takes to actually be in God's word, okay? Second thing. Daily prayer. Daily prayer is our opportunity to communicate with God. It's an opportunity for us to confess our sins. It's a time when we can express our gratitude for who God is and for what he's done. Verse 18, we didn't look at that, but it says, at the end of putting on all the armor, he says, praying at 
all times. That doesn't mean this prayer warrior, okay, I pray for hours a day. No, it's having a mindset of communicating with God throughout the day. You could talk to him anytime. You're driving, you're whatever you're doing. It's communicating with God. So prayer is so powerful. And here's the most important thing I think about prayer. When we make time for the daily habit of prayer, it helps us to further this reality and remind us that it is God who is ultimately in control and not me. If I'm going to God on a regular basis, confessing my sin, asking him for help, telling telling him my needs, all these things, that's going to remind me it's not all about you, Rob. (laughs) You're not in control. You need help. It's going to be a great reminder. That's why prayer is such a good thing. It keeps that relationship in in perspective. Another one is our first thing that that I really feel is vital spiritual practice that really reminds us to help put on our armor and to stand firm. And I really believe that our culture, we really struggle with this, is this is being in transparent relationships with other believers. I'm not just saying being friends. I'm talking about being in transparent relationships with other believers, having people in our lives that we can be completely truthful and transparent with and that we know, that we know will speak the truth. Not just tell us what we want to hear. We love having those, don't we? But tell us what we need to hear no matter what because we know that they love us and they're willing to tell us hard things. That is essential. And for us guys... It's really hard. It's really hard. But I would encourage you to ask the Lord to bring that kind of person into your life, to help you to seek out that kind of person. Try that. Maybe I've never, you might say, I've never been transparent with someone before like that. That's so risky. It is. It's very risky. But it's also the most incredible thing you could have. The men that have been in my life over the years, since my teenage years, that they have made all the difference. All the difference in my walk with the Lord. I could have done it without them. They've kept me on the path. By the way, it's also the enemy's plan to get you and I to believe that any of these practices is not essential. <laughs> okay? That's what he wants to do. Just so you know, he wants us to get us to think, I don't need that that much. He's working. It means he's working. This is where the battle is fought on a daily basis because without these practices, we leave ourselves, what we're doing is we're leaving ourselves vulnerable to the schemes of the enemy. So no matter where any of us are in our journey, in our spiritual journey, we all need to remember that we have an enemy that longs to deceive and destroy us. But the good news is that we have a savior that gives us his never-ending strength his never-ending power to stand firm and to be victorious in his attacks. May we learn to daily trust him to provide the strength that we need in order to experience true joy and true victory in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we, once again, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that is in your word. And I know when speaking about these things, I, I sometimes feel like it's hard to fathom what is actually happening in the spirit realm, and it is. So God, I pray that you would help us to not be so thinking that we have to know what's exactly going on. Help us to trust 
you to know that there is a battle going on. You've told us there's a battle going on, but you've also given us the power and the resources to fight it. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, my friends here. God, I pray that for those that are tangled up in the deception, maybe some lies of going after things that if I just had that, I'd be happier. And the enemy has grabbed them. God, I pray that you would give them relief. I pray you'd give them relief by bringing someone into their life that would speak the truth. I pray that they would feel safe to run to you, first of all. I pray, God, that they would acknowledge that they have a need for your strength. All of us, that we would do that, that we need your strength. Help us to rely and trust in you. Thanks for loving us so much to not leave us alone in this battle. In your son's name we pray.